0: And welcome back to the Global Inquiry, where we take a look at intriguing case studies that examine or explain global trends or phenomena. I'm your host, Nico Marsich, and today I'm sitting down with Nicholas Mortensen, a second year perspective global security and justice major. Nick, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. Thanks. So, the global trend that we're going to look at today is the threat posed by consumer drones, which have the ability to turn conventional warfare on its head. And Nick, you had the chance to sit down with Dan Brown, a professor at UVA. Yeah, so I
1: talked to Dan Brown a couple days ago. He's an assistant professor of science at the university who teaches military science courses on American air power and its evolution. And just as a disclaimer before this episode, the views expressed here both by us and Dan Brown are our views as individuals and not those of any groups we may be a part of or our employers.
0: Yeah, and so listening to this interview, one of the real points of emphasis was the assumption that traditionally for the U.S. military, skies should belong to the U.S. We have control over the skies. And in the past, how has the U.S. kept these skies clear then? So Dan Brown talks about this at length at the beginning of
1: the interview. So let's give him a listen.
2: Well, that is the, the primary mission of the Air Force and ever really since really since the end of the Vietnam War, we haven't conducted an operation where we have not had complete air superiority. Mm-hmm. In order to fly unmanned vehicles or remotely piloted aircraft, you have to have um, clear skies, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and even to a certain extent, you have to have, be able to control the uh, the ground anti-aircraft capabilities mm-hmm. as well because they fly generally lower. Uh, they're a lot less maneuverable mm-hmm. than traditional fighter aircraft. Um, and they're, they're what are called uh, permissive airspace um, technology. So mm-hmm. you have to have an airspace that is permissive in that there aren't any threats to those mm-hmm. things because they fly fairly low, they fly slow, they're mm-hmm. not maneuverable. Um, so if an enemy, if there were other aircraft in the in the sky, other fighter aircraft in the sky, they would be very easy to shoot down. They wouldn't be as effective as mm-hmm. they as they currently are.
1: What he's saying here is that. The United States uses its air force to maintain air superiority. Uh, they keep jets in the air, and they more or less meet the threat and destroy it. And that's how we keep air superiority. That's how we keep the skies clear for our military forces. And how the air force maintains air superiority has had some interesting effects for the rest of the U.S. military, particularly the army. You see, the simple fact of the matter is that the Army assumes that it can operate with some degree of air superiority, that the skies are going to be clear, that you're not going to have jets or anything else dropping bombs on them, performing aerial
0: reconnaissance, or generally being disruptive. And so how do commercial drones then challenge this nature of conventional warfare? It doesn't challenge the nature of conventional
1: warfare as it more opens up a very uncomfortable niche that we simply have to deal with. And before going into uh, commercial drones, I would want to go back to Dan Brown's interview when he talks about conventional drones a little bit more.
2: In general, drones, uh, as a, as, as a uh, factor in the use of American air power, um, they're they're pretty important because mm-hmm. they're fairly inexpensive when it comes to uh, weighing the cost of maintaining and operating uh what you might call traditional aircraft, mm-hmm. man, manned aircraft. Um, and they also have different, they can do different things that uh, manned aircraft can't. They can loiter over a certain area for an extended period of time. This is really good for getting information on particular targets. Um, they can kind of follow convoys along, um, and then they can also, they, they've got that capability to conduct very surgical kinetic strikes as well, mm-hmm. which makes
1: them very useful and versatile. When you say surgical kinetic strike, uh, what does that mean exactly? Kinetic strike
2: is any, uh, is any type of actual attack that causes physical damage. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we, in the military, uh, when it's used, uh, when the word kinetic is used, kinetic strike, that's you know, the actual launching a missile or a bomb mm-hmm. um, against a target on the ground.
1: The kind of drones the United States uses and the usual quadcopter consumer drone you see are simply not in the same level. Uh, A conventional military drone can stay in the air for hours at a time, can be operated quite literally across the world, and can carry thousands of pounds of ordnance. A consumer drone can only be operated in a very small radius, can stay in the air for maybe an hour. It can only carry a couple pounds of, you know, truncated or uh, improvised explosives. However, the main issue is that it's not the asymmetry in capabilities. It's the fact that these consumer drones can perform similar missions. Dan Brown talks about drones performing reconnaissance and bombing missions uh, during his interview. And as we've seen in numerous examples in the Middle East, these consumer drones are capable of performing, in a much weaker sense, the same missions. You can see uh, back in October of 2016 in Mosul, Two Peshmerga fighters were killed, and two French special operations soldiers were killed while inspecting a consumer drone that had been shot down. Is actually stuffed full of explosives.
0: And I understand that's pretty alarming, but I also want to cover the notion that the military is sort of moving away from from infantry warfare and moving towards you know cybersecurity and more naval and air power. So you know if we're moving towards these different avenues. Shouldn't commercial drones have a weaker influence if there are fewer infantry on the ground?
1: Well, we're, we never move away from infantry warfare. Uh, it, it will always come down to the infantryman and his rifle in every instance. What you're seeing is, is us exploring new avenues in cybersecurity and naval assets in air assets to make the life easier and safer for the troops on the ground. Everything we do is to help our ground forces accomplish the mission and do what they need to do. Uh, There is absolutely no shift away of emphasis from there. The issue is that, so, you know, the threat these drones pose to the infantry is front and center. And the main issue is that, you know, we're exploring all these different means, all these different areas. These consumer drones still occupy a very uncomfortable niche for a number of reasons.
0: So for for an organization, for a terrorist organization like ISIS or any sort of paramilitary organization, how much does it cost to to get your hands on one of these commercial drones? These are the ones you can buy off Amazon for fifty to two hundred dollars on the internet,
1: have shipped straight to your door, uh, no questions asked. These are consumer models; they are incredibly cheap. And as Dan Brown said, uh, you know the kind of drones that we operate cost between forty to seven million dollars. These kind of drones cost two hundred.
0: And why can't then the traditional air defense systems work to combat commercial drones? So
1: with the Air Force, the level at which a consumer drone operates and the level at which a jet fighter operates simply are not comparable. Uh, Those jet fighters are going to be thousands of feet in the air traveling at or beyond the speed of sound, and its weapon systems are not built to handle a tiny plastic drone that's, you know, in the air, maybe about 50 feet up. So the Air Force doesn't really have much to do there. The Army, uh, as I previously mentioned, has come to assume that air superiority will be in its favor, and thus its air defense systems are—I wouldn't want to say sparse, but definitely lighter than other nations. The United States Army operates two air defense weapons. One is the Stinger missile, which is a missile that locks onto the heat—the heat emitted by either a helicopter or a jet engine—locks onto that heat signature, flies into that target, and shoots out the sky. It's a lighter, smaller system that can be carried by infantry, mounted on a vehicle. But generally, it's of a fairly, fairly small range uh, in comparison to other systems we've seen. The second weapon the United States military uses is the Patriot missile, which is a radar-guided missile, which it, uh, operates at much higher altitudes at much higher distances and essentially lock, uh, uses radar to identify a target, lock onto it, fly to that target, and again, shoot it out of the sky. But then why can't these work towards commercial drones? Stingers work off locking onto a heat signature and then flying towards that. And since quadcopter drones don't really produce that much heat, it's uncertain whether or not Stinger would actually be able to acquire that target. If you were to set the you know, heat parameter that low, the Stinger could fly in basically anything, like you know, a hot rooftop, anything like the sun's been hitting, anything else like that. So there's the question of whether Stinger would work in the first place. We have, for the Patriot at least, we do have uh, it well-documented, as a matter of fact, that the Patriot can shoot down a commercial drone. There was an article floating around for several months of a U.S. ally that was not named actually using a Patriot missile battery to shoot down a uh, commercial drone. A Patriot battery can cost millions and millions of dollars, and a consumer drone costs $200. The economics there simply do not work. And I, Dan Brown also had an interesting point about radar. So let's listen to him. And you talked about detection. Can you sort of tell me more about what that means or how you would detect, you know, more conventional drones or is that kind of a...
2: Well, radar, radar. Mm-hmm. And from a, from a basic, very basic perspective, you're just bouncing off frequency off of a a wide area mm-hmm. and trying to, trying to come back and identify what it is based on the return. And... Um, there, there are different ways. I mean, there are, there's ground-based radar. Mm-hmm. There's air radar that are um, actually in the aircraft that they're flying around. Um, all those can be used to mm-hmm. detect them. But if you have things like ground – they're flying low enough and uh, there's stuff called ground clutter, which mm-hmm. um, which is very difficult to determine. The radar return from a bunch of trees and a very slow-moving mm-hmm. drone sometimes if it's close enough to the ground. So filtering that stuff out and then trying to identify what exactly is um, – and especially with the drones being as small as they are, the commercial drones – it's not really uh, feasible to, to launch an air-to-air missile, mm-hmm. you know, some, some consumer drone. Mm-hmm. So,
1: What he's saying is that these drones are very tiny, operate at very low altitudes. So you're never really quite certain of whether or not we'd be able to distinguish and target a drone using that radar system. It's an
0: unreliable and incredibly uneconomical solution. Yeah, you brought us back to the threat of commercial drones here, but I kind of want to touch on some of the disadvantages of commercial drones because there there's no way that $200 commercial drones can't come without a certain disadvantage that the U.S. military can really, really pounce on and take advantage of.
1: These are very limited weapon systems. They can't carry heavy payloads. They can't go very far. They can't go very fast. They can't go very high. Now, uh, as i previously said, the issue is that these drones, despite all this, can still perform certain missions, you know, uh, dropping bombs, carrying explosives, acting as a reconnaissance agent. And this issue is further exacerbated by the fact that we don't really have any good tactics or technologies to counter them. The most common tactic we've seen these days is to simply look up and shoot the drone out of the sky, which seems like the common sense answer. As a matter of fact, in Iraq... Iraqi security forces love these drones. Uh, Their target practiced them. Uh, The running joke is that, you know, when the drones overhead, it sounds like a wedding had just gone on because a tradition in Iraq after a wedding is to have all the men shoot their rifles into the air.
0: Though this assumes that you can see the drones and you can anticipate them coming right at you. That's the bigger
1: issue. A lot of the battles cited uh, tend to be lower intensity. Less is going on. uh, There's less action. People are less panicky, less scared. So they're more apt to be observant and looking up. In more intense conflicts like the more recent battle in Mosul, which went for months and was a complete slog for Iraqi forces, things change entirely. Uh, Iraqi special forces actually encountered one of these drone factories in Mosul and for hours had to deal with waves of these drones going after them and trying to drop their payloads. There's footage uh, from Kurdish fighters of Iraqi security forces sustaining casualties as 10 drones actually managed to drop payloads on top of Iraqi security forces.
0: So if if shooting down these commercial drones is not effective... What can the U.S. do to maintain control of the skies? What are the other solutions?
1: The other solution is simply to jam the drones to make them fall out of the sky. And this works because drones work off the same principles as the RC helicopter or RC plane that you used as a a kid. They operate off of radio frequencies. And what jamming does is stop the drone from receiving these radio frequencies, and they simply fall out of the sky afterwards because there's nothing controlling them.
0: Yeah, I remember this past summer I actually traveled to Qatar, and uh, my friend had a drone and you know, going through airport security, they said, look, you can't take this out, of, out and into Qatar. But even if you were, within a two-mile radius of the airport, the drone would have just fallen out of the sky.
1: So what the airport was telling your friend about is the first kind of jamming that we typically see. And that is area of denial jamming. Essentially, there are systems that create a jamming signal up to a certain distance, and any drone that flies into that signal, you know, is jammed, falls out of the sky, and can be safely recovered. The second form of jamming is directional jamming, uh, where you actually have a focused, directed jamming signal that you can point at any drone, and it falls out of the sky on its own.
0: So why why aren't we using these? The first issue with
1: both forms of jamming is that the technology is still in the early stages. When you're developing a tool for military use, it needs to be reliable- simple to use, and very durable. And since these technologies are still in their earlier stages, more often than not, they're anything but. For area of denial jamming, the issue is that these systems are very bulky and very heavy. So if you're trying to defend a building or something, they work fairly well, but they can't follow troops into the field. At best, you can mount them onto a vehicle, but. You know, your Humvee, your car can run out of fuel. It can, it can run into maintenance issues. It can be destroyed, and they just simply cannot go where the infantry, infantry can go. So they can't really follow anyone on the move. The second issue uh, with the directional jamming, there are actually numerous issues there too. The most popular form of directional jamming is known as a drone gun which has uh, popped up on the internet a lot as sort of this sort of wonder weapon uh, sort of solution to all of our issues. However, there are numerous problems there. Yes, it's shaped like a rifle. Yes, you can just point it up into the sky, press a button, and the drone falls out of the sky. But there are a lot of issues there. The system weighs 13 pounds. And when a soldier is carrying 70 to 100 pounds of kit on top of his rifle, which only, you know, weighs 7 pounds fully loaded, that's difficult. Also including the fact that the drone gun is so bulky that it's about the same size as that soldier's rucksack is another issue in itself. Additionally, the drone gun is, is not field tested. It's not combat proven, and it's a system that is too bulky and too heavy to really be used in combat viably.
0: And given that these issues exist and the overall threat of commercial drones will continue moving forward, what are some of the solutions that you would put forward?
1: Dan Brown, in
0: our interview, actually
1: does a very good job outlining sort of the progression and the solutions we need to follow. So let's listen to him first.
2: It's certainly a tactical threat right now. Again, as far as the Air Force is concerned, maybe not so much. But in, from from this pr- perspective of the military and dealing with, you know, a wide variety of threats, you know, and this, this is kind of an extension of that because these are very easy to get, very cheap to acquire. And we found even in Afghanistan and Iraq that the the terrorists are very innovative. They... You know, they, they will spend very little money, amounts of resources, developing IEDs, and this is just an airborne version of an IED in a lot in a lot of respects what they're using now, and then we will spend millions and millions of dollars to counter that, and, um, and that's just the, the way the cycle goes. They don't have to spend a whole lot of resources, time, or money to develop these capabilities um, relative to what we're spending to counter them.
1: And Dan Brown's absolutely right. You have various groups making a very simple weapon that's very disruptive, and we're now forced to adopt new expensive technologies to counter it. The solution is jamming. I talked about the two systems previously. Those systems will become viable as the technology improves, as it becomes more affordable, as it becomes lighter, which is the biggest thing. These will be proliferated and procured and you know, integrated into the US Army's kit. However, until then, we simply have a very uncomfortable niche where the only good solution we have is to look up and shoot at it. And in the the interim period, while we're still
0: getting these technologies developed, that's not a good place to be. And so stepping back, really, really big picture, will this change conventional warfare and will it turn it on its head like I had mentioned at the outset of the podcast?
1: This will not change warfare on its head. This will present a very unique and very pressing disruption, but warfare itself will not be changed. And I think Dan Brown does a great job talking about the changes that we might need to adopt to going forward.
2: But in terms of, is this a, a game changer for the future? Everything's always changing. It's it's hard to say what is going to be. Nobody saw Uber before it came out. I mean, or maybe there were some some indications of it. But um, is this is this going to be a revolution in warfare? I think it's it's an extension of what we have been seeing, uh, but we shouldn't treat it as just, I I was being a little bit flippant when I was saying it's just based on airborne IED, but um, because you have to fight it differently than you would a ground-based IED. Mm -hmm. So as our enemies become more technologically advanced, it's important to realize the direction that they may be taking um, because if they ever acquire the capability to operate these things reliably, effectively, autonomously, and with Bigger payloads and and all that stuff that goes along with that, then that would be something that would, I'd hope we'd
1: be ahead of that before that actually comes to becomes a reality.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What Dan Brown is saying is that the picture of warfare is not changing, but we will have to change to keep up to keep our soldiers safe. Overall, no, this is not a revolution in warfare. You know, the wheel is not being reinvented. This is just a new development that we will have to respond to. The main issue is that we don't have a good answer right now to this new development. And as Dan Brown states, things might get even more interesting. This technology may continue to advance and progress in ways that we can't predict. And until we can develop new technologies that can reliably answer this threat, our soldiers are at risk. And it's
0: simply a new issue that we have to come to terms with. And thanks for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed listening to the episode. And I want to give a big shout out to Nick and, of course, uh, Mr. Dan Brown for the interview. Glad to be there for you. While you're at it, you can go ahead and like us on Facebook and check out some of our older episodes on our new website. And we hope you tune in next week as Katia, Olivier, and I take a look at NAFTA renegotiations and how to implement trade deals in the 21st century. We'll see you next week.